Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a loud, a long blast, may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai 
because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. I'm going to read from Hebrews 12. Just listen to this. Where the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament reflects on that great event at Mount Sinai. And he says, Hebrews 12, 18, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, here on the screen is a picture. It's a photograph that uh, means a lot to me. That, there's my family, and in many ways, that is a photograph that defines my family. We're all there, at least all of us as we were 12 years ago, when Dad was still alive and before the next generation came along. We're in a special place in uh, Wales, place of our family roots, where all our family holidays take place. Surrounded by mum and dad, that's their golden wedding anniversary. And it's their committed love that brought us into being in the first place, that bound us together over the decades. And as I see that photograph, and I have it in my house in a frame, I think that's us. That defines us. And it's as if in the book of Hebrews, where the writer's writing to some Christians who've just begun the Christian life from a Jewish background to come to faith in Jesus, it's as if the writer takes out a couple of family photographs. And the first one is of that scene in Exodus 19. And it's part of the same spiritual family. You know, when you look at a 
photograph from maybe a generation or two back, and mum or dad says, look, you notice, there's, there's the Davis nose, or the Griffith's ear, or the, the, the Robert's chin, or whatever it might be. And you recognize there's a family likeness, but it's still, it's not actually us, but we're related to them. And the writer shows us Exodus 19. This is part of your spiritual family, but then he puts that photograph to one side, takes out another photograph and says, no, that's not you, this is us. That's the new covenant, old covenant family. But this is us. And today we're going to spend most of our time, thanks for that photograph, that one can go down, we're going to forget that one. Because we're going to spend most of our time looking at this old, old photograph. It's rather faded. It's been around for a long, long time. And we're going to recognize the family likeness. Because our knowledge of God, which we share with our spiritual forebears, has much in common with theirs, summed up by this amazing scene. And yet that's not our photograph. There's a different scene. And so we're going to compare and contrast to some degree. But let's begin with this remarkable scene, Exodus 19, and this picture of God's people gathered around his presence. And this knowledge of God, we're going to notice three features of it. Number one, it's founded on grace. It's founded on grace. That's emphasized by the historical context. Chapter 19 begins, on the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. So just as that family photograph of us was in a special, significant place for us, this is no random event. This is a special place. Mount Sinai, the the mountain of God, is the place where Moses met God in Exodus chapter 3. And you remember at the beginning of Exodus, here are the people of God, despite the fact that God had promised that Abraham's descendants would be his special people, he would bless them, and through them all nations would be blessed. Here they are as slaves in Egypt. Things are looking very bleak. But God summons Moses, and Moses meets with God at this very place in the wilderness, on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, it's sometimes called, same place. And God is there in that burning bush. And God says to Moses, I'm going to set you apart, and it's your job to go to the Pharaoh and say, let God's people go, and I will redeem my people, and once they've been redeemed, then you will bring them all and they will gather with you in this very place. And so here the destination has been reached. So how is it that the people of God are gathering in the presence of God? It's because of all that God has done in fulfillment of his covenant promises. So Moses goes up the mountain, God begins to speak, and his opening words are verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How come they can gather in the very presence of God at his holy mountain? Only because of his grace. Because in fulfillment of his covenant promises, he's rescued them from slavery to Egypt, and he's brought them to himself. They had done nothing. I go to lots of weddings, and at weddings there are always speeches, and there are certain traditions about the speeches. 
best man can make jokes. In fact, the best man's expected to make jokes. Groom has really just got to do one thing, say all the right thank yous and be very, very nice about his wife. And he's meant to say all the things that attracted him to his wife. I think of one friend of mine who's spoken, and he described the scene when he first saw his wife, and she came in the room, and he said it was as if the hallelujah chorus was singing in the air. And he described all that attracted to her, her amazing beauty, her character. It went on and on and on and on, and we could forgive him. Because this was a special day, and he loved her. Well, God's speech at our wedding day, and in in some ways this scene has a parallel to a wedding. The relationship between God and his people is described as a marriage. And we're about to get some vows. But God doesn't say to Israel, let me tell you why I fell for you, because you're amazing. You're unlike all the other nations. You're so good and godly, and that's why I chose you. Not a bit of it. It's pure grace. I set my love upon you. Nothing in you that attracted me to you. Pure grace. And because of his grace, when he passed through the land in judgment, that final terrible plague, well, the Israelites deserve to be killed as well. They're sinful also. But in amazing grace, God provided a Passover lamb and the lion was killed instead of the Israelite firstborn. Pure grace. And so it is with us, of course. How can we gather in the very presence of God? And we're gathered today in God's presence. He's with us by his spirit. We can approach him with confidence. And we do so not on the basis of our godliness. We haven't earned this. It's pure grace made possible by the ultimate Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood that we might be forgiven. Any relationship with God must begin in the same way. We don't deserve it. We can never earn it. And that's humbling, isn't it? I can still remember when I was first told that you will never deserve to be a friend of God, and I was rather affronted because I thought I was good. And those words convicted me and made me think, well, maybe I'd better try harder. And I tried a bit harder. But I realized that even though I decided I wasn't going to do this, that, or the other anymore, I couldn't stop. And I read the words of Jesus, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And I thought, that's true of me. I can't do what I want to do, let alone what God wants me to do. I'm a slave to sin, just as the Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh. Very, very humbling to be told that you'll never deserve to be a friend of God, but it's also amazingly liberating to be told that this is founded entirely on grace. Nothing you do but dependent on a free gift. That is liberating. See, any relationship that depends on what I do is inherently insecure. And that leads to a kind of slavery. If I'm so desperate to win your affection, your respect, your friendship, then I'm as secure in our friendship as my last successful joke, my last stunning outfit, my last brilliant achievement. But the next time a joke falls flat, or I feel ugly, 
or I don't pass that exam or get in that team. I lose my confidence because I fear I might lose you. And that can be a cause of huge anxiety because I want you to like me. So before the social event, anxiety, what am I going to wear? Do I look good in this? How's it going to go? During the event, anxiety, are they enjoying my witty conversation? Am I saying too much? Am I saying too little? After the event, going back through, oh no, I can't believe I said that. What do they think of me? And even if you manage to achieve the friendship, get the guy, get the girl, there's still an insecurity if there's a sense in which I somehow earned her, earned him. Well, I've got to keep her. I've got to keep him. So there's a relationship, even a marriage, on tenterhooks, constantly feeling, I've got to keep working, keep deserving, desperately insecure. There's a kind of slavery in that. And so there's a slavery in any religion that tells you that you've got to earn your relationship with God. Sometimes you feel quite proud because, yes, I've been to church today. Said my prayers. Look at the amount of money I've given to charity. But more often there's a terrible guilt because I haven't lived up to those standards I set. And a constant anxiety, have I done enough? Treadmill. That's religion for so many people. But that's not the relationship of God with Israel. It's certainly not the relationship of us with Israel. It's founded on grace. There's a history. How are we at this mountain? Because God graciously, verse 4, carried us on eagles' wings and brought us to himself, founded on grace. Next feature, and again, We have this in common. These two photographs are the same, if you like. This knowledge of God founded on grace, but second, expressed in obedience. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy Nation, And I wonder if that word if somewhat jarred when you heard it read. If. Where's this condition? What's going on here? He can't be saying, only if you obey me, and in the next chapter we're going to see the Ten Commandments, and they're expanded on beyond, only if you fulfill all these Ten Commandments will you be my people. Because that goes against the logic we've already seen. Verse 4 says... By grace you are my people. So what's going on here? Here's one Old Testament uh, commentator, Alec Mateer. The if, he says, relates not to covenant status, but to covenant enjoyment. Status comes by the acts of God. Enjoyment by the responsive commitment of obedience. Obedience is not our part in a two-sided bargain, but our grateful response to what the Lord has unilaterally decided and done. In other words, the, the if concerns 
covenant blessing rather than covenant membership. We belong to God's family by his amazing grace made possible by the blood of the Lamb. But now, if we're to enjoy blessing that comes from being God's people, then there needs to be responsive obedience. Covenant blessing depends on obedience. And we might say more than that, covenant vocation depends on obedience. Because God called us for a purpose, and we can't fulfill his purposes for our lives unless we respond to his grace with obedience. So end of verse 5, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying every nation belongs to me, but I've set you apart for a particular purpose, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now those two phrases are related to each other, and they're linked to what God had said in the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God had said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your descendants, and through you all nations will be blessed. So it wasn't that God was choosing Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel, and couldn't care less about anyone else. He's saying, I've chosen you for a purpose. I'm going to bless you, and through my blessing of you, all nations will be blessed. Ultimately, God's plan was always to save the world. But it began with his people. And for them to fulfill his purposes of being a light to the nations, then they needed to be a distinct holy nation. So God is the holy, perfect God, and his laws reflect his holy character. Be holy, he says, because I am holy. Be like me. Obey these commandments, not just externally, but inwardly, and then you will shine as lights in a dark world, and then you'll be priestly. You'll fulfill your role as a kingdom of priests. A priest is a mediator that stands between God and people. And God is saying, I'm setting you apart, you Israelites, as a kind of priestly nation that you might represent me to all the nations as you live distinct holy lives, as a light to the nation. The people are drawn to me through you that they too might know me and might worship me. But of course, that role depends on obedience. If they're not holy... If they're just like all the other nations, they don't stand out. They don't shine as a light. They rather reflect the darkness rather than the light of God. And they can't be a priestly nation. So you see, the common misunderstanding about Old Testament religion is completely wrong. It's not that God began with plan A. People have to obey my law, and if they do enough, I'll forgive them and make them my people. But it didn't work because the people couldn't obey properly. So God comes up with plan B, which is all about grace. Now, right from the beginning, it's grace. We cannot be saved by godly lives. We can't become God's people by godly lives. But once we've received God's grace, we must live godly lives if we are to fulfill God's purposes for us. And this is true both in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. Listen to these words of Peter, the Apostle, in his second chapter of his first letter. And as you do, just glance down at verses 5 and 6, and you'll hear 
phrases picked up by Peter, and he's talking to Jews and Gentiles who belong to Christ, the new covenant church. And he says, you, you Christians, Jews and Gentiles who've come to Christ, you are a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's picking up from Exodus 19, the very words of Exodus 19. And he's saying to the church, that's you and me if we've come to Christ. This is us. We've got this role to be a holy people. Having been uh, recipients of God's amazing grace, now we are to live holy lives that we might be a priestly people. So in the New Covenant Church, there aren't any particular people who are set apart as priests. Peter and I are not priests who somehow mediate between you and God. Jesus is the one priest who mediates through his death on the cross. But all of us have a priestly role in relation to the world. We live lives that honor him. He goes on in the same chapter to say, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may glorify God on the day he visits you. And what he's saying is, stand out. Be holy. And as you are, God-willing people will be drawn not just to you, but to your God who's changed you. And then they too, God-willing, will come to worship Jesus for themselves. This is our role. It's founded on grace, this knowledge of God, but to be expressed in obedience. And the people of God, they're on that mountain. They respond, verse 8, we will do everything the Lord has said. They haven't even heard yet what he demands. And we'll see next week in chapter 20, the summary of those commands in the Ten Commandments. Of course, they couldn't do it. They didn't do it. And so often they weren't the light that they should be. And sadly, so often we're not the light we should be. But this is us, gathered in the presence of God, gathered by his grace, and as his people, graciously gathered through the blood of the Lamb, hearing his word, that we might go out and live it into the world and shine out as distinct for his glory. Are we doing that? See, if one mistake is to think that somehow I've got to earn it, I've got to earn it, I've got to earn it, and we're constantly trying to live good lives to earn it, that's devastating. It's exhausting. The other mistake is to think, no, it doesn't depend on good, good deeds. It's all grace, and then we don't bother to live as we should. And tragically, so often, instead of shining out in a dark world, the church has been dark itself. And instead of drawing people to the Lord Jesus by the quality and distinctness of our lives individually and corporately, so often people think, I don't want to be like that, thank you very much. Isn't that devastating? But gloriously, it can be different, and I've seen it many times. And so often I meet people who've come to church, maybe come to a Christianity Explored group, and I ask them what's brought them, and so often they'll say to me, well, I met so-and-so. She came to my workplace or she 
was studying the same school or course as me. Well, that, that group of people in our community, and, and I just thought there's something different about these people, or there's something different about that person. And I want to know what it is. And they've been drawn because of the holiness of their life. I even heard once of a man who was a very committed communist who hated religion. He got involved as a local councillor in his community. Hated religion. But then as he got involved in the local community, he couldn't stop noticing that again and again, it was Christians who were welcoming the refugees, who were teaching them language skills. It was Christians who were knocking on the doors of the elderly and and giving them free lunches and taking them to hospital visits. It was Christians who were running the kids' groups that were giving the kids something to do at the end of a day when parents hadn't yet come home. And so having begun by hating religion, he ended up saying, I don't believe a word of it, but I'm so glad these people are in this community. Well, at the very least, that's what people should be saying about you and me. And God willing, they'll be asking, what is it about these people? And they too, we pray, will come to know the Lord Jesus. So here's this scene. Founded on grace, expressed in obedience, and the final feature, and again, same for us. Number three, experienced in relationship. But it's a different order of relationship between these two scenes. Let's begin with Mount Sinai. God calls his people, not just to obey him, but to know him. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you. Just think of that. The people will hear the living God. And then verse 11. Be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. They'll not only hear the living God, they will see the living God. This is something else. It's such a huge moment that there are two days set apart for preparation. And you can imagine the excitement. We're going to meet with God. But alongside the excitement is a huge amount of trepidation because of the solemn warning that comes, verse 12. Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Well, today is Bonfire Day here in Britain. And I remember as a kid going to Bonfire Party, the the, the early ones, and there were plenty of warnings. There was a rope around the bonfire Don't get close. And there's a a further rope so you'd keep away from the fireworks. There were lots of warnings from parents and all those who run the event. Don't get too close. There's fire. There's danger. It's a huge excitement, but also a sense of trepidation. And sometimes we'd be warned we wouldn't get the toffee apple if we went beyond the rope. And that created a bit of fear. But no one ever said to me, if you go beyond the rope, we'll kill you. I mean, that would be going a bit far, wouldn't it? (laughs) And yet here, it's not simply danger. If you touch the mountain, you'll be zapped, it'll kill you. No, we will kill you. 
Well, that concentrates the minds and the hearts because God is not a God to be approached glibly with hands in pockets in the wrong way. I've often quoted the time when I was listening for some bizarre reason, Gardner's Question Time on Radio 4. It must have been in the car. And the final question was a kind of jokey question. If you, if you could invite anyone to your garden to have tea, who would you invite? And the final answer was, I'd like to invite God into my garden for tea. I'd like to invite, invite, ask him why he invented green fly and slugs. And then came the final words, I think it would be quite entertaining. And I thought, you have no idea about the living God. If you think to have tea with God in your garden would simply be quite entertaining. You haven't read the Old Testament, or if you have, you haven't believed it. Because here is God graciously, lovingly inviting people to meet with him. But you couldn't describe this scene as merely entertaining. Now our God is a consuming fire. And so before approaching him, wash your clothes. I, I take it that's a symbol of the fact that we're spiritually unclean and, and the washing of clothes should symbol, s- signify the fact that we need to be cleansed of our pollution. Abstain from having sex, he says. Not because sex is dirty, but just to, 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 to prepare spiritually, it seems. In the New Testament, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 7 encourages marriage Couples not to refrain from having sex, except by consent, maybe for a brief period, that they might focus on prayer. It's the equivalent of fasting. Food is very good. But maybe for for a particular period, refrain from food just to focus spiritually on God. That's the kind of sense here. This is such an awesome moment. You should be in the right mind, focused. And then the big day comes. And you've often longed, looked forward to a big day, maybe a wedding day, and you've longed for a beautiful, sunny day, No uh, cloudless sky, no wind or anything. If that's what they were hoping for, they were very disappointed. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then verse 17, they're led by Moses to meet with God. But they only vaguely meet with him. They get to the foot of the mountain, but can't go any further. And it's an amazing scene as God descends on the mountain. And our senses are assaulted by the description of the scene. There's a blazing light, billowing smoke, quaking ground, an earth-shattering sound of trumpets. And then the awesome voice of the living God. And perhaps you think, that must have been amazing. And you've been to bonfire parties and firework displays and you know those shrieks of wah, amazement and awe and maybe an encore. No one said encore. And if there was any noise, it was the shriek of fear. And pleading for the noise to stop. Hebrews 12, those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. And the writer the Hebrews, he takes out this photograph of our spiritual forebears. He said, now, there's much in common that you have here. You also have an experience, but this is not the photograph that defines you. Because this photograph is marked by distance. You get so far, but no further. Only Moses allowed up the, up the mountain. 
Just as in a little while, where God comes down, as it were, lives amongst his people in the tabernacle, and then that's replaced by the temple, only the high priest could go into the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. Beyond that, there are barriers. Get close, but not too close. And this scene highlights the tension that's there in the Old Testament. How can sinful people like you and me approach this awesome, holy God? And the writer takes out another photograph from the album and says, no, that's not us. This is us. We've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is a symbol of heaven itself. And we're not at the foot of the mountain, we're in the very presence of God. And he's exactly the same God as this. Don't think there's an Old Testament God and he's the judge, and now there's a New Testament God and he's all smiley. Now you've come, says the writer of the Hebrews, to the judge of all. He's not changed. He's not lowered his standards. And yet we can approach him into his very presence on the mountain itself. And we're no longer quivering with fear. How possible? Well, because of Jesus. You've come to him whose blood speaks a better word than the word of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. He was murdered, remember, by his brother. But you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, a word that cries out for forgiveness and mercy and grace because Jesus' blood was shed for you and for me. And because of that, there are no barriers. Despite our sin. We can stand, indeed, we can live in the presence of God. Spiritually, we're speaking with there already. And that's our eternal home. And so as the writer reminds us, that's what it was like. But this is us now. What does it do? Very, very briefly, it guards against presumption, does it not? Yes, we have friendship with the living God. But don't think that's an easy or light thing. Remember that old scene. We're no longer there only by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It guards against presumption. And surely as we look at that scene, we'll also marvel at our privileges. That was amazing for them. But what we have in Christ is far, far greater. Spiritually speaking, We're in Mount Zion today, in the presence of God. Marvel at your privilege. And then it reminds us of our purpose. That having received this amazing grace, defined above all in your relationship with the living God, we should remember that we've got a glorious privilege and task and responsibility to go from this place, to live for him, to shine forth as lights in a dark world, to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, so that God willing, people will see something, the presence of God in us individually and commonly. And will say, I want some of that. And God willing, they too, and perhaps I say you too, if there's a sense of these things being a bit strange to you, you too can enjoy this amazing privilege. Let me pray. Loving Father, help these two photographs, as it were, 
to remind us something of the privileges we have in Christ. And maybe that second photograph be latched into our minds as who we are and therefore how we should rejoice and how we should live for your glory. Amen.